out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As always, playing the finest in indie pop from that golden decade, but sometimes slipping into other genres. And also, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Echo Betty, because I spoke to one of the main members. It was Glenn Johansson. Um, This was, um, I think, the tail end of 2018. Anyway, it was a while back, and uh, to find out more about life, love, poetry. And also, at that time, they had been putting together a compilation entitled Black Heart Lullabies that was released December 2018. And um, yes, yeah, so that is reference to that particular release. But you'll get the gist. It's Britpop all the way. Anyway, after getting, you know, a casual five minutes of getting to know each other, we got down to that exciting business that was the beginning of the band. And this was Glenn's response. Glenn? It's over to you. I initially came over to London uh, with a group of uh, Swedish friends. We were kind of kind of a band, and uh, I mean, so it was the music kind of scene that brought me over to London. Um, this was uh, very very early nineties, probably nineteen ninety, I think. Um, the rest of the guys went back to Sweden, uh, and I, I met Sonia in a club, so I decided to stay on. So we uh, we kind of uh, formed the band. Um, we got in touch with um, someone recommended a drummer called Andy Henderson for us, um, and uh, then we quickly found uh, Alex Keys at the bass player. So it was four of us initially uh, when we started around '93, I think, and uh, uh, we were just we were just about to do our first UK tour, I think, and. Um, I fractured my elbow, so um, we, we needed a second guitarist to come in and help out. And uh, Debbie Smith had she used to come to to our gigs in London, and we kind of knew she was a fan of the band, so uh, we kind of asked her if she wanted to come along on this tour, you know, as a second guitarist, which she did, and stayed on in the band <laughs> ever since, really. Yes, and also just to just to sort of stop you there. I mean, because because with a lot of bands, it's getting a single or something that gets played outside mm. their sort of yeah, getting a single played and getting a bit of exposure because otherwise they're stuck playing in their sort of you know local environment wherever that is, yeah. playing in front of their fan, you know, friends and family who That's are sort right, of obviously yeah. um, sort of having to be sort of emotionally blackmailed to keep come to all your gigs. So being able to then put together. A tour must have been um, yes. You did well. So you did you, had you got well, a single out by then? The thing is, the thing is, when we first started out, we were quite lucky. We uh, we kind of I think we got reviewed by the enemy, one of the first, maybe the second or third gig we ever done, and uh, we got a bit of attention from that. And uh, we had just finished our first uh, or our debut EP called Bellyache, and um, Steve Lamack made it his uh, single of the week. Uh, he had a program called The Evening Sessions, I think it was, on BBC. So it kind of kick-started from there, really, you know, and it got easier and easier to, to uh, do tours, you know. And So it happened quite early on for us without too much effort. We were quite lucky in that sense, you know. Yes, incredibly. And how did, did it take long to get your Asan? Because obviously when you formed, you know, we were all sort of madly mm. excited about 
the grunge scene and obviously, you know, yeah. Nevermind was coming out and we were all very engrossed with what was happening in Seattle yeah. as well as, you know, Sonic Youth and the Buttholes and Big Black. So obviously, yeah. you know, when, when you started making that early sound, did it, I mean, was there a space for it, so to speak? Well, I, I think it was, I, would, I think there was something in the air, to be honest with you, you know, um, that, because there was so much uh, American bands uh, being played, and it, it was kind of, um, it was almost like a lack of something British. Uh, I remember really early on, before it was called anything like Britpop or anything like that, uh, we, all of us were on the tube, the whole band we were going somewhere, and in the same carriage <laughs> at the other end was Blur. <laughs> And and we would realize we were wearing exactly the same kind of clothes, you know, we were in DMs and Fred Paris and stuff, and we kind of looked at each other, you know. So there was definitely something in the air, you know. Yes. So I'm, I think, uh, especially Damon was on a bit of a mission to um, resurrect some type of British culture, you know. Um, so it, it kind of just happened you know it was in the air you know it wasn't just us it was a lot of other bands as well you know yes and it was obviously because i'm sort of we're based in norwich on the east side and um right. and obviously london did seem to be one massive happy community all hanging out at camden because you had sort of you had a bit of a north london scene with pit bands like silverfish and the faith mm. healers who were a bit more sort of thrashy but then yeah. you know you had bands coming along like lush and mm. um Yes, is it the Pale Saints as well? You were he would sort of veered from sort of being a bit shoegazy to to sort yeah. of making a bit kind of a, a sort of a cleaner sound. And I, I guess Blur were the band who really made that happen. Yeah, and I, th I think it was also a little bit of a punk ethic as well, you know, and especially music-wise, it was definitely spikier and a bit more, uh, yeah, a bit punky, a bit thrashy. Uh, I'd say, you know, early on. I mean, it was also just kind of before someone coined the phrase Britpop, I think the media tried to sort of resurrect some sort of uh, post-punk scene or post-new wave of new wave scene, so sort of, sort to of speak. And it was like a short-lived thing, but, but um, it definitely uh, was the start of it all, I think. And, and uh, it was just, I mean, it just, the whole Brit thing, it just, because it kind of became mainstream. And it was the first time that kind of genre, uh, like indie or whatever you want to call it, actually became proper mainstream, you know, played on Radio 1 and things like that. So yes. so, so it, it, it just, just kind of grew out of that, I think. And I think. I think people were kind of, a lot of people were kind of fed up with just being fed American bands all the time. And not, not, nothing, nothing wrong with those bands, it was a lot of great bands, but... Uh, but I think that I felt a sense of pride that it was something that came from these aisles, you know. Yeah. And did you find, because cause most bands that I've interviewed, especially the 80s bands, mm. there was a sort of a bit of a narrative where, you know, if they made a single and John Peel picked it up, that was fantastic. They'd often get a John yeah. Peel session, which was like the big thing that gave them that. 
access and certainly yeah. sort of doorway to, to playing gigs outside their sort of community and in mm. front of people who didn't particularly know them or grew up with them or, or were or related to them. And then, you know, a John Peel session, then the album would happen. Um, and and after that, you know, there was the sort of tricky second album. And if anybody ever did America, they came back and were traumatised and that was when the band split up. But you managed to sort of whip out three albums in success, you know, in successive years. So that was pretty amazing kind of uh, productivity. Yeah, you know, I mean, you, you kind of want to roll, you know, because it, it was quite hectic, quite especially early on um, after our debut album we started touring abroad as well and uh, went to America for the first time and Japan and uh, Europe and all over really and uh, it was like a constant touring schedule and uh, in between you, you, you went into demo the next record you know writing try to, had to write on the road basically and uh, so it was a very busy first two three years it was kind of full on you know but uh, but it was also very inspiring, you know. You kind of right in the middle of it, and you kind of you just the kind of urges you on a bit, you know. So you tend to to, to write a lot more, and uh, you know, being very productive that way. So. Yes, because your second album, the one in it was ninety five mm. on, which had quite a lot of the big hits. Is that the one when you look back on those those first few albums? Is that the one that you were happiest with? Uh. No, not really. Uh, it, it was the first album that had uh, like a decent budget uh, spent on it, and uh, we used these two, uh, ironically, uh, two American guys to produce it. Uh, um, Sean, uh, Sean and Slade, uh, Sean Slade and Paul Coldray, I think they're called. They had, uh, I think, they produced the uh, Radiohead, the Bands. Um, and I don't know how we came to, to work with them, but uh, they came over here. So we recorded a second album in North London in a place called Conk Studios, um, which is owned by Ray Davis from Kinks. And, uh, and then we mixed it in Boston, for Apache in Boston in America. So, so we had a bit more money spent on it, and, and Danny kind of really took off. Uh, and after the album, it was constant touring for for about two years, you know, and very little chance to actually write as well. So it kind of uh, became the yeah biggest album. Not necessarily um, the album that we are most happy with, you know. But, uh, yes, yeah. because cause you're rarely happy with anything, to be honest with you. And there's always something in retrospect saying, "Oh, I should have done this, should have done that," you know. It, it, it's one of those things, you know, that perfection doesn't exist. I think, you know, <laughs> if you if you do if you manage to achieve perfection, you might, might as well give up, really. <laughs> I guess actually, I always remember people like Neil Young would often they never played the album almost, you know, ever ever you know like actually played the album when it finished because I think they just kind of wanted to move on to the next project and yeah, you know. but and not only that. Besides, because you're spending so much time a recording it, you listen back to recordings, you listen back to mixes. And and then when it goes to mastering, listen back again. So you you end up listening to it a lot uh, because you have to. And so and then you might listen to it once or twice afterwards. But then you kind of yeah, you just want to move on. And it is maybe kind of five six years down the line, you give it another listen, and uh, you know. So, uh, but that's just the way it is. You know, I mean, we're just working on a, on a double album at the moment of. Um, 
B-sides and bonus tracks and some unreleased stuff as well that we're putting together. Yes. And, and uh, when I first started listening back to, to, to things that we, we haven't actually heard for many years, uh, some songs I have absolutely no memory of. And I thought that would be scary because I'm, hey, I've written this, but I have no memory of this whatsoever. It was like hearing the song for the first time, you know. That must be very strange. So, uh, yes. It happens. Yeah, because obviously, as you were saying, that it was constant and, and Sonia sort of got her throat problem and slightly, obviously, that affected the, the band. So during that time, did it feel like things were starting to um, get more tricky? Yeah, it did. Uh the, the bands are very difficult to to keep together, you know, because it, it's usually not. I mean, if you kind of brought up together as, as friends, you know, you start a band, it might be slightly different. But if you're not, uh, you kind of thrown together a bunch of people, a bunch of individuals, and uh, and if you live uh, very close. To each other for for a long time, or basically upon each other for a very long time, traveling on buses or whatever it is, you know, it can get a bit strange, you know, and uh, especially when things are not going well, <laughs> you know, it tends to fights tend to break out, and you know, it, it's very very difficult to to I think to to keep harmony within a band. Yes. Well, that's the one thing I've never, you know, sort of hadn't sort of realised. Well, I had slightly, but um, it was only from doing this show that I realised the complexities of being in a band mm. and um, maintaining some sort of harmony, or not even harmony, just like a, a, pro- a professional work yeah. relationship is kind of. I suppose if people went into it like that, it might yeah. just about succeed. But if they were doing it because it was some sort of, I suppose, slightly glorified and excitable hobby, it's going to end in tears. So that's why I'm always a bit of, you yeah. know, I've, I've grown over the last couple of years to appreciate people like you too, because they obviously realised what was at stake and managed to keep it together and almost yeah. act in a very yeah. professional way rather than letting things get in the way that would, you yeah. know. I, I always say that, I mean, if, if I had to give like a, a new band some, some advice, you know, uh, it would be that if things are going well, you know, just just whatever your grievances are, just fucking sort it out, you know, if you're onto a good thing, you know, stick with it and, uh, you know, uh, and work together and sort out your problems early on, you know, rather than ignoring them because they tend to grow and grow. And, uh, but to be honest with you, the one number one factor with most bands when it comes to disagreements is usually money. It's rarely anything else than that. Sometimes, perhaps, musical differences, but it's usually money. Yes. Um, did that was was it? Because uh, I know that from quite a few bands, whoever did this. Uh, the songwriting was the person obviously who was going to get more was and then there's a few bands I think you two and actually James with the other band who just divide who just kind of did it as a collective yeah. and then just divided it amongst them yeah. so how did Echo Belly deal with that side of it well me and Sonia wrote we wrote everything but we did uh, share share our publishing with, with the other members as well uh, it wasn't a complete split uh, because you've got to remember as well. You you hey, you sign a publishing deal. You you got you got uh, 50% is owned by the publisher. 50% goes to the songwriters. So straight away it's, it's you got 50% to to deal with. Now you've got a manager that might take 20% of everything you do. So you basically left with 30%. You know, and then between yourselves and you you give the other band members a percentage as well. 
So it's actually very little, you know, when it comes down to it. And uh, but the record company set up was that we all paid a wage, an equal wage. We all we were paid exactly the same same amount from the record company. But the publishing was uh, leaning more on me and Sonia because we wrote the songs, you know. But we did we did share with the others as well. But yes, and obviously, did you? Because obviously, the the band did have a split after. 97 and you had a bit of a four-year break did it did you have a definite moment to say was it a sort of let's just have a break or we're going to finish the band at that stage it just happened really to be honest with you it it was uh, it was the tail end of Britpop I mean when we released our last album because we started out with with an independent label that were funded by Sony Uh, same thing with Creation Records they were also funded by Sony and it went on to this uh European kind of label that was owned by Sony, uh, and the idea was for the third album to sign directly to Sony, which we did uh, for the last album Lustra that we did. Um, but that came at the very when the whole Britpop thing was just basically fading out. And it's, if you're part of any scene, um, you know you will <laughs> you will die by it as well, so to speak. So it was very difficult uh, for us when we released the last record, because the interest has kind of waned a bit, to, to be honest with you, the whole Britpop thing was dead. And um, press weren't really interested. So it was a few tricky years, you know. So that's why we decided to kind of call it a day. Not entirely. Um, it was me, Sonia and Andy, the original drummer, left. Uh, but we still kept writing songs, me and Sonia. So we we did uh, finance a couple of albums ourselves, as well, and tried to carry on and move on musically as well, which I think we did uh, a great deal. But once you kind of associated with a scene, it's very hard for people to to see through that, you know, and ignore it. So uh, mm. it was difficult. So so it was kind of after those two albums, uh, I would say around. Early noughties, I think we kind of decided to call it a day, really. Um, yeah, and uh, me and Sonia kept writing the under a different name, so to speak, just more acoustic stuff. Yes. And it was just kind of quite recently there, someone suggested, why don't you do uh, an Echo Belly thing again? We weren't very keen on doing it, to be honest with you. The only premise to do that was to, to, to release new material and... and work with some other people, you know, to keep it fresh and, you know. Yes. And, also, and just going back slightly, you, you also, I mean, this was incredibly ambitious, set up your own record label, didn't you? Fry Up Label. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and again, you know, I mean, being in the band's one thing, but then sort of uh, starting an, another business is quite something. So how did that go? Because that was where your fourth album, People Are Expensive, was released. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it was... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like a properly funded label. It, it, it was, we, we put money into it ourselves. We paid for the recordings. We had to get PR and press and distribution, etc., which we sorted out ourselves. Um, it's quite a lot of work involved. So the, the time we spend on music is a lot less. Uh, and I've kind of got the same problem now. I'm spending most of my time doing just admin stuff, you know, and uh, very little time to actually play guitar or making music and it 
it is frustrating and it's a pain in the ass because you you have way out of your depth as well. You know, certain things you don't understand how some things work, and but you kind of have to figure out and you have to ask advice, and it, it's uh, it's quite tricky. But uh, it takes up a lot of time to monitor it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it's a bit frustrating as well. Yeah, very. Yeah, and during that time, obviously, out of the band, mm. you and Sonia are the, the two who sort of kept communication mm. and, and, and sort of friendship going through that period yeah. when you weren't yeah. kind of echo Betty. So when you came back and started doing some acoustic shows, did that feel kind of exciting? Yeah, it did, actually. It felt quite liberating as well, I think. Because it was the first time we'd done something and it wasn't echo Betty, so I just called it something different. It's called Calm of Zero, and... Uh, we released a couple of mini albums, acoustic mini albums, and the idea was to continue with that. But um, as I said, we we bumped into a, an old agent that we used to know, and he suggested doing a Nekabelli show. Because so, he said that the interest is kind of getting interest again in the whole kind of uh, rip hop thing, you know. So we thought, okay, we'll, we'll try it out. But it it was weird to be honest with you, to, to go back and play those songs again. It felt a bit strange. Yes. Uh, it wasn't until we released new music that it kind of felt okay. Yeah, because one thing that's kind of um, the great sort of band, you know, because there's been an awful lot of bands now sort of reforming and having mm. um, a kind of enjoyable time. I think most, that you know, especially that 80s period, I mean, um, they seem to be sort of navigating the, the the trauma of being in a band again quite well. Um, yeah. You know, like they've they've sort of they've played a few dates. They've quite enjoyed it. I mean, really small, you know, low key kind mm-hmm. of events. And they've and a couple have also put out a sort of EPs through sort of you know their own sort of steam and and are setting mm-hmm. up dates you know for for themselves. So they're ke- they're keeping it in a very DIY and not sort of particularly giving up their day jobs at the same time or sort of making any yeah. rash decisions. But there's a few bands who came back and obviously you know agents and managers could see there was some potential kind of financial reward for this and things didn't go terribly well because I remember there was a documentary um and they had um was it Stuart Copeland from the police talking about him and Sting and their relationship yeah. and, yeah. and needing band therapy and I know there's another Britpop band who came back it was lush, and that didn't go down terribly well. In well, didn't finish terribly well in the end. So, no, did did you did you have um, did you have um, worry about sort of bringing it back, you know, and doing Echo Valley again, just in case <coughs> in case no, you well, not not so much because because we started working with another bass player, another drummer. So, so uh, we uh, there were reasons why we didn't go back to the original band members. Um, Andy, our drummer, for instance, he kind of quit drumming because I think his hearing was fucked. And uh, uh, he said he just didn't play music anymore. Uh, and we felt that it's no point trying to recreate something you did 20 years ago because cause you, you're different people, you know, the energy is different, everything about it is different. Um, so if we're going to do something, it has to be something new and fresh, you know. And so we have to move on. So, so that was the reason to just start working with the, so, some new people, myself and Sonia, you know, just to get, try to get away from the the old and, um, you know, do something new. Yeah. Uh, but you always have that as a back catalogue to, to go back to full live shows and stuff, you know. So it's great to have that kind of, um, the opportunity to play all these songs, you know. And that's another thing that we kind of, uh, the reason why we kind of wanted to, be echo well again was because 
he felt like it'd be weird not to ever be, never to be able to play those songs again. You know, we, we, some of the songs we felt that we really wanted to do that. Yeah, and have you so, yeah. uh, and re and sort of um, performing them live? Does that mean you can do them differently, uh, do them musically in a different way, and sort of uh, alter them somewhat? Yeah. Well, we can. We, we some of them we tweak a little bit. You know, some of them we keep pretty much to the, the way they were. You know, uh, on the original album. But I mean, we're a bit more of a simple band now in terms of setup. It's just uh, one guitar, bass, drums. So there's not two guitar players; it's just one guitar player myself. So, so everything is a little bit, it's a little raw, uh, I say. You know, some of those songs they're they are a bit, yeah, a bit more simple, if you yeah. like. And are you when you look at artists like, you know, David Bowie, and I remember sort of being mm. obsessed with Bowie, and then sort of, you know, having sort of spent a lot of my life sort of following his musical life and sort of, you know, and seeing what he did. I was always, always amazed just looking at his 70s period where he kind of released one album a year and then yeah. produced other people's stuff and then relocated to different um, cities in different countries. And and he kept sort of changing. I mean, as an artist, do you, do you also sort of look at yourself and, and sort of either sort of feel amazed with people like Bowie or feel inspired by them? A bit of both, really. You know, I mean, we played a couple of shows with him. Uh, and... I, the thing with Bowie is he's he's, he's always Bowie when he's out and about. You know he's always David Bowie. You know he's never David Jones, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, he's always puts this thing on. You know he's always the star, David Bowie. You know, but uh, extremely nice guy, very very much of a gentleman. Really really cool guy to hang out with. Um, with amazing stories. You know so <laughs> you know, but. Um, yeah, you 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 inspire by people like that. Yeah, they're, they're definitely trying to push uh, push the envelope, you know, and try to do something new all the time, and never want to re- really repeat yourself. And and uh, it's the kind of need you have, I think, you know. Uh, you you want to try new things, you know. You yes. want to you know, find new sounds. You want to work with different people, you know. Try different genres, you know. It, it's, it depends on what you kind of listening to, because you you get into different styles of music, you know. Uh, um, I don't listen to the same thing I did ten years ago at all. It, 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 it changes all the time, you know. Yeah, and obviously this has been a kind of busy year because you had that collection of B sides. And are you also currently funding a new album? No, that we have a, that B side album is not released yet. We, we just uh, been putting it together uh, over the last uh, few months. We released uh, our own album, Anakin Alchemy, last year. Um, and the Beast album is coming out probably early November, probably. And it's going to be a double, just double vinyl, double album, double CD. You know, so there are 20 songs on that. Uh, and about four or five songs that have never been heard before. And uh, some some rare tracks that it's like US bonus tracks or Japanese bonus tracks and things, things that never got released over here. So, And it's also a certain vibe on the record. Um, it was Sonia's idea. She had the title called Black Heart Lullabies. And there was also a side to, to Echo Belly. There was a lot darker and not as all kind of Britpop that people are not that familiar with. Familiar with but they, they might, if they, unless they got all the albums, you know, on the B-sides and stuff, you know, they wouldn't be. So if people are 
know of the band. They know, they know all the great things, King of the Curb, and blah, blah. They know all those songs, but they don't necessarily know the other side of the band. So they see you as, as this is Echo Ballet, that, that they all break pop, blah, 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 blah. Yes. But they, it's a totally different, they're slightly, it's almost slightly dark, gothic kind of side to some of the songs. And um, so we wanted to have an album with just that kind of uh, vibe to it. So, so hence the, uh, because of the title, Black Hot Lullaby. So, that's what we've been doing for the last few months, trying to get all this stuff together. And uh, yeah, we're finally done with it. Because having spoke to quite a few people, there's a, there's a sort of a really, for them, I realise there's a sort of a real nice sense of somehow completing something and not having at the time, the, you know, and you kind of slightly mentioned that, it, everything is such a blur when you're in, in that moment that mm. you, 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 know, you don't really have time to sort of take anything in or appreciate anything. It's just kind of going from one day to another, everything right. being absolutely full. So going back, had, did that feel, did it feel like a, quite an important thing kind of a, on an emotional level? What do you mean? The... Well, sort of going back and sort of sorting out the back catalogue. Oh, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, it was. Because uh, I have a few uh, kind of boxes of uh, old tapes and what have you. So one evening we sat down and so I started listening through to all this stuff. And yes, it was very weird uh, and very emotional. Because um, you didn't know quite know how you felt about it. You know, it was... It, it was yeah, it was very emotional. It was, it was very weird to to listen back to all this stuff. And it, it was good, actually. We you know, it was kind of it's kind of a mixture between good and bad, if you know what I mean. It, it um, it's hard to explain. It, it's um, part of you kind of feel nostalgic for it and and a bit sad, really, but. And the part of you feel very excited about it because things you haven't heard for a long time, and you realise, oh, it's actually really good, blah blah blah. So it was, it was weird. Listen, we needed several bottles of wine, you know, in order to do it. But uh, <laughs> we were, we got that in the end. So, mm. but yeah, it was, it was, was emotional to listen to it. It really was. When you mentioned sad, did it? I mean, in, in what way was it kind of sad? Well, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of. Uh, Gone by era, you know, you, you youth, all, all the happy memories and, you know, all that stuff, you know, and uh, partly that, but but uh, also a sense of pride of, of what you've done and what you've achieved and what you've written and what you've recorded. And, uh, but, it, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it's a strange feeling <laughs> to start um, digging through your past, you know. It's, it's like anything, you know. I suppose you go to psychotherapy or something and start digging around your past. It might not always turn up that well for people. You know, it, it's, it's just one of those things, you know. Absolutely. No. Well, at least you've got Sonia to slightly sort of talk about um, the process and how you're feeling about doing, you know, going through these archives, which must be quite nice to have somebody to, to share it with because obviously, because yeah. the other members of the band probably, you know what, aren't quite so involved in that process, which is no, kind of strange. No, it, no it just, it's just two of us, really. Yes. And then does that mean that you're feeling, once this is sort of tidied up and cleaned and you've done it, that, you know, you're keen to do new material again? Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. I mean, the thing, the thing when you write something, I mean... Uh, especially if you're on a, on a, like a, on a professional level, you know... Uh, once you've written a song, you, you kind of need for it to be released. 
you know, it doesn't matter necessarily matter what it does, but you need to release it. You need to release it from your system, you know, so you can write new songs, you know. Otherwise, you've got all the backlog of songs in your head that you haven't recorded or haven't been released. And that kind of stops you making, coming up with new stuff all the time. So I think it now it's kind of, there's still a few songs left that I haven't released, but it's the majority of material uh, from the band. Um, and this is from, from, from 93 to up to the end of, uh, end of the nineties, I think, you know, so, but a lot of those songs that haven't been heard, as I said, and, and some unreleased stuff as well. So it, it's, it feels good for, for them to be released, you know, and it's like, uh, now we can get on with, we got clean slate and start writing again you know that's, yes. that's what it feels like really so same with you know it, it, you need to, to get rid of it in order to to do new stuff excellent god it does sound like um, been quite an interesting journey this year all the last 18 yeah, months yeah yeah it has yes actually yeah. especially in going back you know listening to all this stuff and uh, yeah we this is some guy, there's someone writing a book as well, so we had to go through lots of other sort of press clippings and photographs and stuff because I managed to keep a few uh, big plastic boxes of, of stuff, you know. Yes. It, was, it was all print in those days, you know. So you know, it takes up a lot of space, but uh, yeah, it, that, it's it's an emotional journey going back, you know, like that. It's like regression almost, you know, <laughs> regression therapy, you know. Excellent. And what would you, just lastly, what would you say to your 18-year-old self? Uh, uh, what would I say? Um, oh, there's someone who thinks we did wrong, David, and there's someone who thinks we did right. Um, it's kind of hard to say. Just just stick with it, you know, and do what you do. You know, I've, 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 I've got no regrets about anything, really. You know, I'm quite happy with a lot of things that we've done and the way things turned out and still to this day writing music and feeling excited about it you know and uh, yeah uh, it's hard to say just just knuckle down get on with it you know work hard you know write as much as you can and you know go through this experience as good or bad because that, that teaches you a lot as well you know it makes you grow as a human being you know, if everything is like a, everything's just roses, it's just going to be quite dull, you know. So you need to be up and down. Yes. And I also, like, bro. yeah. And also the one thing that sometimes catches people out is the ownership of music. Did you manage to sort of navigate those tricky waters okay? Yeah, we did. Um, well, there's, there's, there's two things there. You've got publishing and you've got uh, so-called master rights from a record company. A record company owns the recordings of a tune, yeah? They own that particular recording. If you re-record it, they've got nothing to do with the record company. You can do that. But that's a publishing matter, uh, the intellectual property right of a song, the right for the actual song. That's the publisher's part of the whole scenario. So that we managed to get our back catalog back because uh, uh, their copyright time ran out uh, universals. So we got our songs back two years ago, which means that we're in control of our own songs, uh, the compositions, that is. But the first three albums were paid for by Sony, so they own those recordings. I had to license four or five songs from Sony to do this album now. 
Um, so you kind of paint to use your own <laughs> songs. But it's the recordings that are owned by Sony uh, on Ego and Lustra, you know. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to use any of those tracks the way they are, those recordings, we have to have a license from Sony to do so. So that we have not got back. We haven't got our master rights for those three albums. But we own the the rights for the, the intellectual property rights for the songs, if you know what I mean. Yes. God, it's such a tricky... And it's such a... Oh, man, I've been doing this for... Uh, publishing, it, it just... I mean, 20 years, I still don't understand the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Especially now, we, we, go, we, we knew digital te- technology and streaming. It's all changed as well. It's all turned everything upside down. So it's getting very complicated. <laughs> it's very complicated. Because I know yeah. for most of these kind of other, you know, bands from the, the 80s period, they kind of get quite excited and, and surprised when they get a £60 royalty check a year. So obviously mm. they just find that quite amusing, really. So um, hopefully, well, <laughs> hopefully your royalty <laughs> check's more than £60 a year. I think if they get yeah, played once on six... I think sometimes their music gets played on six music and it sort of means... Mm. They might get a bit of a check at Christmas that they could um, yeah, buy, yeah. buy a sh- bottle of sherry, sherry with or something. Exactly, exactly. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, rather than think of Spotify, I don't pay very much to the artists because they don't they don't like a deal directly with the five major labels so for to access their catalogs. But they're paying the record companies a big chunk of money, uh, quite a lot, I think. Um, but that doesn't necessarily filter through from the record company to the artist. No. In the same, you know, so so you see very little from Spotify and YouTube and things like that. Yes, you know. Well, it's interesting because I noticed that with Spotify, you can have a look at the sort of monthly listeners for each band, and yeah. and Echo Belly, you know, you're right up there with nearly thirty five thousand listeners a month, which you know for twenty five years later, you mm. you know you, your fans are obviously you know have fond memories, but are also still playing your music from around the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's always nice to see, you know, but especially nice to see when people discover it, you know, twenty years on, you know, and uh, that that's that's always even more exciting in a way, you know. Well, yes, that is exciting. Anyway, look, Glenn, thank you mm-hmm. for this for this interview, and also I'll tell you when I sort of put it out, so you can. Okay. Um, I don't know tweet it or something and um, that would be fantastic. But again, thanks, and I'm really pleased that it's uh, it's kind of getting there, as they say. In the world of music, yeah, and, and uh, <laughs> yes, you've you've got your B side sorted out, and hopefully, new material in the new year. So that'd be great. Yeah, but anyway, exactly. fantastic. Well, have a great day, and thank you again for your time. Thank you, David. Pleasure to talk to you. Take care. Bye bye. Take care now. Bye. And that, dear listener, was the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, I don't blame you if you didn't. If you're not, but anyway. Uh, that was Glenn Johansson from Echo Belly, and that was a um, the release that he was talking about. Uh, is titled Black Heart Lullabies. That is now out and about. Anyway, if you want to contact me for whatever reason, just to be nice, obviously, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C eighty six show. Um, it's always nice, and also all these shows have been uh, archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Anyway, take care. Stay safe. Speak soon.